Why don't we go together to Luke chapter 12 as we've been making our way through Luke's gospel together. This morning we pick back up in the 12th chapter and if you do have your Bibles, Luke chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off which would be in verse 49 and we'll travel down to the end of the chapter in verse 59 this morning. And if you're turned there together with me, would you stand out of respect for the word of God as I read our text for Bible study? We pick up in the middle of this teaching of Jesus, his words here, Luke 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I come to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. <clears throat> but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, and two against three. Father will be divided against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west... Immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there is. Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with your adversary to the magistrate and make every effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you into prison, I tell you, you shall not depart from there until you have paid the very last might. And Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning, asking that you'd help us now to continue in an attitude of worship before you. And that we would allow you, Lord, by your spirit to write your will on the fleshly tablet of our heart. Thank you for your word, Lord, for breathing it out and inspiring it that we might know your will and your heart. And we pray this morning that you would give us an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church that's assembled. And that your Holy Spirit's anointing would be upon the word of God. And that you'd bless your word. You know what we need and what we're asking, Lord. We've come to worship you, and as a part of it, we want to hear what you need to say to us. So speak into our lives, Lord, personally and powerfully, and Jesus be our teacher and our instructor, and give us understanding of your word. Bless this time now, we pray, and we ask in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I've discovered, as I'm sure you have as well, that part of this life is being confronted routinely with situations where you have to decide to do the right thing. Perhaps even in this past week, you were confronted with a situation where you were pretty strongly faced with the reality of were you or were you not going to do the right thing? Maybe even this morning you were faced with a situation where you had to weigh out and decide, hey, what's the right thing to do here? Many of us in this next week will face situations like that. Well, in this section in front of us, Jesus is discussing, I think, some realities regarding doing the right thing. 
In fact, if you're kind of an outliner, the way I see some of the things laid out in this chapter section we're looking at this morning here, I see Jesus addressing some realities of doing the right thing. And in verse 49 to 50, it becomes obvious to me in the words of Jesus that the Lord himself has a very strong desire to always do the right thing. He is the righteous one, and therefore he always desires to do what's righteous. As we look in verses 50 to 53 there, we see very clearly in the Lord's language that it's not an easy thing to do the right thing. In fact, he's going to show us how it's really, quite honestly, pretty costly. And not only is it not easy to do the right thing, that many a times he's going to show us in those verses that there's a cost to be paid for doing the right thing on occasion, especially in spiritual matters. We'll see as we get to verse 54 to 56 there that it's not complicated at all to do the right thing. Jesus is going to say it's really rather obvious and he's going to sort of chide or rebuke those he's speaking to because they were sort of ignoring and failing to see the very reality and the simplicity how the right thing was right before their eyes. It wasn't a complicated matter. It was very obvious. And so often in our lives, is it not true that, as I've said before to many people talking to them, it's usually not complicated to do what's right. It's just hard. Have you ever found that before? It usually doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's the right thing to do in situations. It just takes a, a, a working against the resistance of our own self-will that many times wants to go opposed to what's right in our lives. And lastly, we'll see in verse 57 to 58 that Jesus exhorts or challenges those of those who were listening in that day to say to them, look, it's not wise to delay when you know what the right thing to do is. That once you know, it's better to resolve the matter quickly and do the right thing and respond to it and delaying when you know the right thing to do is never a good thing. Now the background, remember, Jesus has been in this teaching as we've been looking at in just the prior few statements. He's been strongly warning those who are listening to be ready for his coming to be ready for his soon return. He said in verse 40, Therefore you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So Jesus is teaching about being warning, uh, warning to be ready for his coming. And he talked in parables as well how each of us will be held accountable for what we know. And that is just a spiritual principle that God holds us responsible for what we do with the understanding that we personally possess. To whom much is given, much is required, Jesus would say. And God holds us accountable. God holds us responsible for what light we've received, for what understanding that we possess. Once we understand, God will judge us accordingly to those standards of what did we do with what understanding that we possess. Now at this point, Jesus begins to sort of wrap up this public teaching, having began back in the beginning of chapter 12. And if you notice when we read, he starts to use some really strong language. Uh, You know, it's not a real encouraging thing when the first thing you read in a Bible study is, I came to send fire on the earth. And you're thinking, great, I should have slept in or went to Denny's for breakfast instead. I mean, it's pretty obvious Jesus is being pretty direct now. He's being rather severe and rather straightforward with some of the things that he's saying. But the purpose of that strong language is to sober and to shock people into the realization that it is vitally important to respond rightly to what Jesus was saying to them. He wanted those who were listening in that day, he was trying to encourage them to a right response that they would do what is right. 
And as I said, as we go back into these verses, the first thing that we take note of in regards to doing the right thing ourselves, the first thing we note of in verse 49 and 50 as Jesus starts to speak is we see very clearly this overriding principle that it is the strong desire of our Lord Jesus himself, and it was in the days of his humanity, to always do the right thing. Look with me again in verse 49. Jesus says there, I came to send fire on the earth and how I wish, his passion, how I wish, he says, that it were actually already kindled. Now, I have to admit as we go into this verse here that it's a bit challenging to correctly understand exactly what Jesus himself may have indeed been inferring or referring to here. I don't think we can be dogmatic. If you read commentators, some of them are divided in this space here regarding exactly what the statement of Jesus means. We only find it in Luke's gospel. It's pretty clear that he's directly indicating that his desire, in fact, he says his purpose in his coming, he says, was to send fire on the earth. And then he goes so far as to say that he even wished, he had passion, had wish, that he says that fire were actually already started. Now, let me give my best stab at what I think Jesus possibly was speaking about here. First of all, in context, which is always important, we know that in the prior verses we studied last time together, that Jesus' prior statements were directly regarding and talking about judgment. Remember, he was talking about how when the master who was away would return back to where he was and observe his servants, he would judge them according to what they did during his absence. And he was directly in the prior statements, and again, this is a flowing teaching, in context, he was just clearly speaking about judgment, saying when the master returns, he will judge his servants according to their works and what they did during his absence. Secondarily, we also know from the testimony of John the Baptist, who spoke about the purpose of the coming of Jesus, there we find in John the Baptist's testimony as the forerunner of Jesus, a reference regarding the ministry of the Lord Jesus using the term fire to illustrate part of what Jesus' coming would be about. Let me read to you Matthew 11, verse three, uh, three, chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. John the Baptist says this about Jesus in Matthew 3. He said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he, Jesus, who is coming after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor, gather his wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So it's pretty clear in the testimony of John the Baptist and his reference to Jesus' ministry that John understood by the Spirit of God's understanding that not only would Jesus in his first coming provide salvation through his work on the cross and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that in his first coming salvation would be made available, but that Jesus' ministry would ultimately conclude in his work with a just judgment of separation where God himself through Jesus would bring forth the judgment of God with fire, the Bible tells us, upon those who are ungodly and reject God's salvation. So though it does indeed sound, verse 49, a bit stern, 
It seems to me, and you are free to disagree, it seems to me that Jesus' statement here is about a fire of separation that will happen in judgment upon those upon this earth. When things are exposed to fire, the result is the quality of that material is always instantaneously revealed. When you bring fire to any material, you can tell right away what the quality of that material is. And because Jesus is righteous, as I said earlier, because Jesus is righteous, he always, always desires what is righteous to come to pass. And can I say this this morning? It is a righteous thing for a holy and just God to bring judgment upon this earth that that would come to pass where appropriate and when deserved. It's a completely righteous thing. And though Jesus is absolutely loving, I don't question that. The Word of God makes it very clear that, that God is love. And Jesus was God incarnate. He was love manifest upon the earth. But at the same time, the Bible also says that God is light. That means God is holy. And God doesn't have to compromise His love or His holiness to be at the same time simultaneously light and love. And though Jesus is absolutely loving, he still wishes and desires that the fire of judgment, it says here, were already happening upon the earth. Now, I think there could be two reasons for that. First of all, so that people would be exposed clearly for who they are. Because, see, when the judgment of God begins to happen, it brings an abrupt end to hypocrisy and to deception, which were two things that Jesus obviously felt very strongly about. And was very opposed to. And when judgment comes and God brings about his discipline or judgment, hypocrisy is, is instantly exposed and dealt with and deception is done away with. I think another reason why Jesus desired for the judgment of God to be coming past in his heart even that day is because Jesus more than anyone is fully aware of the destructiveness of the effects of sin upon this earth in the lives of people. Jesus knows better than anyone how damaging sin is when it's left undealt with in the lives of people. I mean, quite honestly, we illustrate, I mean, sin in and of itself is, is like a small spark that can very quickly become like an out-of-control forest fire that burns and consumes and spreads and devours and damages and it overtakes and sin can get out of control undealt with sin in the life of an individual or among a group of people sinful actions can damage and destroy lives it damages and destroys marriages it damages and destroys uh, you know families sin destroys churches sin damages cultures it ruins entire nations and Jesus understanding the destructiveness of sin and what it causes upon humanity says, look, there is, however, a coming day when sin will be dealt with in a just and a righteous way. There is a coming time, Jesus says, when sin will be righteously judged and removed from the presence of this earth. When God, you know, God already dealt with the penalty of sin and the power of of sin upon the cross of Jesus Christ. But thanks be to God, one day he's going to deal with the presence of sin, which is one of the things that still plagues us and disheartens us and causes so many of us to struggle in our time here upon this earth. And that will come through a fiery judgment in which God himself will bring. 
Listen to what we read in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 15 and 16. It says, For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots, like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword the Lord will judge all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Malachi tells us in chapter 3, verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. The New Testament tells us, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 27, that there is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour God's adversaries. See, the Bible teaches that God is a consuming fire. And through Jesus, God, who is not a pushover, but a righteous and holy judge, though loving and compassionate, will one day judge in an equitable and fair and just way upon this earth. And Jesus, because he is saddened to see what sin does among our lives, and Jesus, understanding how the effects of sin many a times disheartens us, it angers us, And therefore, I see Jesus here strongly reminding, listen, his disciples, listen, one day I will remove the presence of sin and its destructive activities and the damage that it causes to lives and the families that it ruins and the people that it just completely just defiles. And he says, listen, one day. Don't you lose heart. I've not lost my my sense of righteousness and the desire to remove sin and iniquity. Because see, sometimes, let's be very honest, when I see the presence of sin having its effect in my life, or I see the presence of sin being undealt with and having its, its effect ruining families and destroying marriages and defiling our culture, I get a little disheartened sometimes. And to be very candid at times, I even get a little angry on occasion. And I think sometimes as we see things taking place and we see the effects of sin, there's a part of us sometimes that begins to struggle. Lord, why do you let it go on? Lord, why? Lord, how can you be so patient and so compassionate? Lord, look what it's doing to this person. Lord, look what it's doing to this family. Look what it's doing to our culture. And and I see Jesus saying here, listen, I, I came to send fire on the earth and one day I will purge all that's ungodly and all that's wicked and all that's defiling humanity. And he says, and I wish it were kindled. But my father and I know the right time. And my father and I are aware. We will deal justly with all things, but there's a process and we have to trust the Lord's timing in that. Now, though Jesus will judge sin, take notice that his love also compelled him to provide a way of escape For every one of us who are sinners. Look what he goes on to say in verse 50. After speaking of judgment, he says, verse 50, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Of course, Jesus here using figurative language to speak of his own suffering for the sins of the world. And he speaks in a way here to illustrate that before the fire of judgment is brought forth, upon this earth, which will one day happen, that Jesus first provided a way of escape so that we don't have to deal with and bear up under the judgment that we all honestly deserve as sinners in the presence of a holy God. That's why Jesus says in verse 50 there, the beginning of it, look, I'm going to send fire on the earth. And he says, but 
I have a baptism to be baptized with at first. And that word baptism there that's used in the New Testament means to immerse something or to fully submerge or to plunge is what the original word means. And Jesus here is using an illustration indicating how his own personal life would be fully submerged. His life would be plunged into something in a very personal way. And he's speaking of how his life would be completely plunged into the wrath of God against sin. How his personal life in every way would be submerged into as the sin offering for the world at his suffering and death. He used the same language in Mark's gospel, chapter 10, verse 38 there, where Jesus says to James and John, are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I will undergo? And Jesus here, in a figurative way, is describing how he fully knew that his life must be personally baptized, immersed into the fire of the judgment of the wrath of God. That he would stand in our place and step in as our substitute and the fire of God's holy and righteous judgment would fall completely upon Jesus. And that God would fire down all of his wrath and all of his just judgment upon the person of his own dear son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus became the sin offering. The Bible tells us that John, when he looked at Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the same way, the animal would be sacrificed on the altar and the, the fire would consume the animal and there was an offering, an innocent substitute had to be placed on the altar. And the Jews understood that. And as they watched the blood pour out of the lamb and as they watched the animal be placed on the altar and the fire consume that substitute on their behalf, it spoke very strongly to them of the reality that my sin caused that. That animal had to experience that and I did the selfish thing. I was the guilty one and yet that animal had to experience that. As they watched the blood pour out and the fire consume the offering, Jesus says, look, I am the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world and the only way that could happen is how the sinless Son of God could come to this earth and could be fully God and fully man, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus could come to this earth and live as a man the sinless life that you and I are never capable to live. And then after living the perfect sinless life, he then stepped into our place as the guilty party. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. And God fired down all of heaven's holy just wrath upon the Son of God and there was something that took place that will never fully grasp between the Son of God and the Father. And can you imagine the shock to the system of Jesus Christ, the sinless, pure, holy Son of God, as He Himself, the Bible said, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, if you've ever gone out maybe on a really hot day and the ocean's very cold and you first walk in and there's just a shock to your system or if you fall into a freezing cold pool, can you imagine the shock to the system of the sinless Son of God as He became the sin offering for us and experienced the judgment of His Father who He's in perfect fellowship with? But yet Jesus says, this was my mission, this was my purpose. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And notice verse 50, how distressed Jesus says. The idea is burdened. How distressed I am until this is accomplished. Notice Jesus was so concerned about accomplishing this purpose of our salvation, it actually distressed him. When you look at the term there, distress, the language literally indicates to apply pressure 
or to squeeze something in such a way that it, that it causes it to be strangled because of the squeezing and the pressure. And Jesus is referring to what he was feeling internally because of the constraining love of God in his heart for humanity that Jesus says, until I accomplish what needs to be accomplished and I say upon the cross of Calvary, it is finished. He says, it distresses me. My heart is so burdened with love for the world that I came for and the desire to see people forgiven and have access to heaven. He says he longed to fulfill this righteous act. Jesus' heart, literally, it says, was distressed until this was accomplished. And I think, again, that distress is most likely twofold. First of all, as I said, because of how difficult it would be for Jesus to accomplish this. Hey, let us not forget Jesus being fully God but fully man. He had all the same nerve sensations and capacities for pain and suffering that all of us do. And when you look at the suffering of Jesus Christ... And the unjust treatment that he experienced. How he was mocked and how he was ridiculed. And things said about him that weren't true. And then to be spit upon and to have his beard ripped out of his face. And to be scourged and to be punched and abused. And then to be pierced and hang upon a cross. And to go through that whole process. How distressing in his humanity that would be. Not to mention the brief turning away. As Jesus cried on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And something happened there between the Father and the Son. How distressing that would be upon Jesus personally. But as well, I think it's also a great reminder of how Jesus was simply distressed because of the compelling love that he has for every single one of us in this room. That the love of God inside of Jesus' heart was so strong that he understood the reality of the effects of sin and the separation that existed between the Holy Father in heaven and sinful humanity here on earth. And because of the great love Jesus has for you, the issue of the forgiveness of our sins being available to us by faith in Jesus and, and the arrangement of having access to eternal life by God's grace through believing in Jesus, it mattered so much to Jesus because he loved us so much until this was resolved, it distressed him. It concerned him and burdened him because he couldn't wait to make it available to us. Now notice that despite how difficult that was going to be for Jesus, I love to see, as Jesus uses his own words to describe his distress, or I love to see how committed Jesus was to accomplish what his calling was. To me, it's such a tremendous example how determined with great desire Jesus was to make sure that we were reconciled to God, to make sure we all had the access and opportunity to freely go to heaven if we choose to respond to God's offer of salvation, that we all had the opportunity to escape the coming wrath of God that will righteously come upon the earth, and Jesus would not turn aside from his calling until it was accomplished, until it was finished. Hebrews tells us this in chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. It says that we should be, look, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Reason, listen, verse 3, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. See, the writer of Hebrews said by the Holy Spirit, listen, if you're a Christian and you get weary and discouraged in your soul 
And maybe sometimes the presence of sin and the pressures of sin and the temptations and the difficulty of making good and godly choices, you get weary in well-doing. As Paul said, let us not grow weary in well-doing. Notice Paul included himself. He understands it's a universal struggle. But he says when we get weary and discouraged in our souls, the Bible says, hey, what do you need? You don't need to go see somebody and lay on a couch or pop medicine or say, hey, somebody. The Bible says, no, just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Consider him and what he endured. And he says, when you look to Jesus and you see what he did with passion, determination, and did it for you, he says, somehow, supernaturally, God will encourage your soul. And he'll revive you and he'll give you another measure of spiritual tenacity to say, if Jesus could endure that, and if he could continue on in faithfulness, I can take the step to walk through another hour. I can make it for one more day. And he says, it's a great encouragement. Many times we struggle with discouragement. The Bible says the greatest antidote for discouragement is just to look at Jesus and to see what he's done for us because it encourages us. I love to see how Jesus is someone who has such a strong desire to follow through until he accomplishes that thing that he knew was right and righteous. And can I say this this morning? As the Spirit of Jesus lives inside of those of us who are believers, the Bible says Christ in you, Christ in me, the hope of glory. The same Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I believe it's his heart to cultivate the same thing in us. That in the same way he was desirous and distressed to always do what was righteous and right, I believe as we yield to the presence of Jesus' spirit within us, it should be cultivating in us a strong desire to do what's right. As Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And when I let Jesus live through my life, that should, one part of that should be that desire of Jesus by his spirit saying, Tony, I want to do the right thing in your life. I want you to do the right thing. I want you to make the right choice. Even when it's hard, I want you to follow through. And I want you to do the right thing. Well, notice, despite the desire to do what's right, as Jesus goes on, we see that it wasn't always easy to do the right thing. In fact, it's rather costly. It certainly was costly for Jesus. And he shows it will be costly for us as well as his followers. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, Do you, do you suppose that I came to give peace on the earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, he says, five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Father divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus speaks pretty directly again with strong language, shocking realities of the faithful spiritual life. Notice what Jesus says in verse 51. He asks this sort of question challenging them. He says, look, listen, do you suppose that I just came to give peace on the earth? In other words, Jesus is saying, do you honestly think that my purpose in coming to a fallen and sinful world was foremost just to help everybody get along? As if Jesus came to just be the divine social director, just to make sure everybody's having a good time at the party and nobody's feelings are hurt? Jesus says, do you really think that I would come to this world to just help people become more accepting of each other and, and extra friendly and just if we're extra friendly, everything will be satisfied on the earth as if the purpose of Jesus was just to enable people to develop a more tolerant spirit of things on this earth whereby we look at things and we evaluate things and despite the effects of sin and what it does and its wrongdoing, we should just be accepting of anyone and everyone, no matter what they want to believe and what they want to say and how they want to live and what they want to do, regardless of the effects of sin and wrongdoing, that we should all just try and get along. 
And let's build a diversified and unified melting pot where everybody has their own ideas and they can do what their heart's desire is and let's just have a tolerant spirit and be friendly and have an environment where nothing is right and nothing is wrong and whatever you see fit in your own desires, let's just be happy, don't worry, be happy. Jesus didn't like that song, I'm sure. We can ask him when we get there, don't trust me. But Jesus says, no, no, verse 51, he says, I tell you the truth, not at all, but rather, he says, division. Not just bringing peace on the earth, but he says, I'll actually, by my presence and what I've done, bring division. Jesus didn't come to just join everybody together in happy harmony despite spiritual beliefs or behavior on the earth. He didn't come to get people to set aside their spiritual beliefs. Listen, I'll tell you, Jesus came to represent and to reveal the truth. Jesus came to reveal the truth. And can I say this this morning? Truth automatically indicates that there is error. Right? When you use the word truth, what does it mean? What's true and what's false? The word truth indicates that error exists. And Jesus said, I am the way. And he said, I am the truth. In other words, Jesus himself, being God in the flesh, indicates what is right, and he also identifies what is wrong. He represents and reveals the truth, and I love the strength of Jesus that he doesn't apologize for that. In fact, you find Jesus here admitting and acknowledging that thing, and even the awareness that this would bring, he says in verse 51, it would bring division. It would cause a measure of separation on this earth among people's lives. And we all must at times come to a choice of what side we're going to stand on. It's part of the reality of this life and really the result of Jesus coming to this earth. That it causes each and every one of us to have to come to a place where people decide where they're going to stand. On what side are you going to stand on? Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. There's not more options. And that we would have to come to a place regarding spiritual and eternal realities to choose where we're going to stand and then have the courage to stand on that side by faith despite the personal consequences it would bring into each and every one of our lives. And the presence of Jesus and his coming to this earth causes that reality to take place where we have to be willing to stand on the side of what is right and true, of what we know and believe is right spiritually and eternally, despite the reality of the repercussions and the consequences and the personal challenges that it's going to bring into our lives directly many a times as a result. And it may not be easy. Many times Jesus says it will be costly. Notice how he illustrates it in verse 52 and 53. He says, from now on, in one house, a house of five, he says, it'll be two against three and three against two. And then he lists how relatives, fathers against sons, and sons against their fathers, and mothers against their own daughters, and daughters against their own mothers. And how this difficult struggle would begin to take place. Now remember, in that ancient culture, a lot more than today's day and age, in that ancient culture, families were very close-knit, and they were extremely interdependent upon one another simply for survival. It was just a way of life in that ancient culture. Many a times, they would often build additions right on to the same house on the same property to help support one another. Now, I have to be honest, having three daughters, I don't mind that idea. Just, you know, my son-in-law comes along. Once he finally 
pays the extremely expensive dowry and stares down the face of my shotgun, that afterwards, afterwards, how, well, where can I take her? Well, just start building on the living room, right there. So I keep a real close eye on you because I'm not a good shot, so I, well, you're close if I need to. I wouldn't mind that reality. But in that culture, that was a very common thing. They would just build right on an addition to the existing house, and they would work closely to simply survive and get by. They were interdependent. They had to support on one another. Now, that would facilitate very deep and close bonds emotionally, especially with families. So to have such a sharp division as Jesus is describing in verse 52 and 53, and a separation in such close family relationships, where mothers would divide against their own daughters... And daughters would, would just separate from their own mother, that natural family love, and then enhanced by the way that they lived in that culture. And fathers would, would, would separate from their own sons, and sons would say, you know what, hey, what I believe, I believe that, and if that means a division in our relationship, I choose Jesus over you. Can you imagine how shocking and sobering that would be? This was a very strong reality, and it was quite honestly offensive and risky. Jesus was showing how even the closest of social relationships with deep emotional bonds may at times become divided due to what people believe about Jesus and how they relate to Jesus in their own personal life. The Lord is indicating how at times people may have to choose between pleasing family and pleasing the Lord. That there may come occasions in this life of deciding between having family's approval and acceptance or having the approval of the Lord and following Jesus foremost. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 36 to 38. Jesus said there, Matthew 10, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus said even the members of our own household because of the dividing line of spiritual realities and light and darkness that exists, he says sharp divisions can even come in those closest of emotional bonds that exist here on this earth. And he says, it can happen. And here you find Jesus just predicting such divisions will happen. And perhaps this morning, if you're a Christian, you've already experienced this. Maybe in some way, since you've been walking with the Lord in an effort to follow Jesus in some way, it actually created a division, a separation with one of your own family members. Now, I've experienced this on multiple occasions, even just recently again, in seeking to follow the will of the Lord to uproot our family and to leave our church there and to come here and move forward with a new outreach ministry. We had members of our own immediate family, members of our family who were saying things, particularly to my wife, you know, what are you doing? That's, that's so irresponsible. Your husband takes that Jesus thing too seriously. And he takes that Bible thing too literally. Yeah, I do. And, and, and that tension comes, and that friction and that rub happens. 
You may in your life begin to try and just follow Jesus more passionately and because you want to stand up for what the Word of God says and live in a lifestyle that's consistent with Scripture or not do certain things or choose to do certain things with your time. Your family may not understand and because of that, friction happens. Division happens. What's the matter with you? You put this Jesus thing before you do us. And we can find ourselves as the Lord calls us to walk closely with him or maybe make a decision on biblical principle in those places where even the closest of emotional bonds can find themselves being in a dividing spot. And let's be honest, that's hard. That is extremely difficult. To have that kind of a tear and that kind of division is probably one of the most challenging types of separation. And it's hard when those deep emotional connections are there. Listen, don't get me wrong. The Bible is very clear in its teaching that we are to honor and to value family relationships. The Bible says honor your mother and father. The Bible says we should honor marriage. The Bible says we should honor and care for our children. Don't, don't misunderstand what I or the Lord are saying here. However, though we should put great honor and value on family life, if there ever comes a time at a crossroad where you must decide, where you are forced to make a decision whether to follow and obey Jesus in some area, and you have to legitimately decide between obeying Jesus or having family acceptance, in such moments, Jesus should always be put first. Your eternal family is what will last forever with you. And Jesus is a part of that, and the body of Christ is a part of that. And if your family should force you to choose in some way, can I encourage you? Trust the Lord and do the right thing in the sight of God. Do the right thing in the sight of God. Honor His Word. Obey His Spirit. No matter, listen, how hard it is. Because I tell you, God will honor that. God will honor that. Listen to what Jesus encouraged the disciples with Mark 10, 28 to 30. Peter began to say, Lord, we've left all and followed you. And Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come and eternal life. See, God will honor those decisions. He will honor those times when we're forced to decide at a defining moment and we choose to stand on the side of Jesus and honor the Word of God and obey the Lord as it may be. So some pretty strong realities of what it means to at times be a follower of Jesus. And that day, the Jews already at this time were being put out of their synagogues and put out of their families for being followers of Jesus. And in today's anti-Christian culture, it's not really that popular to follow Jesus in today's day and age. It's becoming more difficult. What a reminder that it's not easy doing the right thing. And often doing what's right is quite hard, but let's have the courage to do it. Let's ask for the boldness of God's Spirit to do the right thing. Sometimes doing the right thing is going to involve a personal cost. We have to be willing to pay that cost. Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 14 that we should count the cost before deciding to follow Jesus. Some of you are facing something right now or you may face something in the future where you're going to have to choose. And you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to count the cost. Do I want the approval or the acceptance of my friends, of the other teenagers, of my associates at work, or do I want to be right in the sight of God? Do I want to say, you know what, I will follow Jesus. David said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 
We all love that old song, right? Remember the words of it? I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And it says, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. It's not always an easy thing. It can be quite costly. Well, Jesus speaks as well of how doing what's right really isn't complicated either. As he goes on in verse 54, he now begins to speak to the crowd. And he says, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming, and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather, and there it is. So Jesus, speaking to the Jews present in that crowd, he says, look, it's obvious that you are capable to and you care enough to forecast the weather in the physical atmosphere that you're currently living in. The Jews knew that showers often came from the west over the Mediterranean. So when they saw clouds arising in the west, they knew that was a sign and they correctly judged the fact that showers were coming. In the same way, the Jews in Israel knew that the hot Sirocco winds would come up from the south. So when they sensed that southerly wind blowing in the atmosphere, they deduced and understood, hey, that points to a coming heat wave. The point Jesus is driving home here as he's going to make an application is people knew the weather signs and they could see the signs clearly and they could detect from the signs and they would accurately forecast what was coming as a result of the signs that they could see. Now to drive his point home, he then says in verse 56, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? So what's Jesus doing? He's rebuking them in a very direct way for not being able to forecast spiritually the climate in the day and age they were living in, even though they clearly were capable to and cared enough to forecast the current weather systems that were around them. And he says, wait a minute here. You're able to forecast the weather, but you're failing to discern the spiritual climate in which you're living in. You see the signs in the atmosphere and you care enough to to make response to the forecast that you can tell is coming. So in essence, he's saying, I don't understand. Why then would you not, why, he says, why would you not do so regarding the spiritual time and the spiritual climate in the season in which you were living in? They were failing to respond to the current spiritual climate and forecast what God was doing and to sense what was happening. The Jews had so much evidence. They had so many signs from God regarding their time. They had their Old Testament scriptures and prophecies that indicated the coming of Messiah so clearly. Hundreds of detailed prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling accurately right in front of them. They would only take the time and look at the the indicators that God had set before them and the signs that were obvious to them. But yet, instead, they were apathetic and they were out of tune. And it seemed they were uninterested in the spiritual forecast and climate that was happening right among them, and they were ignoring all the spiritual signs and failing to realize the present spiritual climate of the day and age that they were in in their generation. And applying this to ourselves, today, let's be honest, we are all guilty of much the same in our current generation. I mean, think about it. We are an amazing people in our technologically advanced society. We are intelligent and capable beyond belief to understand how all kinds of things operate. We put tremendous effort and care and concern and we diligently research and understand how so many things in this life work. 
Yet, by and large, the majority of our current generation is apathetic and is ignorant regarding spiritual matters. It's really quite astonishing. We have the capability to understand so many other things, and we employment, we employ it. We have the care and the concern to take interest in, in looking on the, the news channel or today's day and age on your little iPhone. And we say, okay, hey, I can tell what the weather's going to be, so we better get off the beach because a storm's coming. And, and we understand, and we, we care enough to do all that. And Jesus says this is so out of, out of character because he says, yet our world is completely ignoring all the spiritual signs and the climate of what God is doing and what the Word of God clearly forecasts. And Jesus says it's not even complicated. God has made it so simple a young child can understand spiritual truths. The problem is, quite honestly, is most people in that situation, they just don't want to see it for themselves. And that's why Jesus says in verse 57, Yes, and why even of yourselves do you not judge, he says, what is is right. So the point Jesus is making here, he gives a challenge that it is not wise to delay when we know what the right thing to do is. He says, look, when you understand what is right and it's so clearly set before you, why, he says, would you not judge for yourself? You have the capability. Why not be concerned? This is eternal and spiritual matter. He says, why, when you have that capability, would you not judge what you're clearly capable to be able to understand and respond to it in the same way, why would a person not make their own judgment when what God has shown them is so clear regarding spiritual things? And it really, in many ways, seems to have baffled Jesus as he's urging his listeners to come to a decision. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, listen, why would you not come to a conclusion seeing what's ahead? Why are you ignoring, Jesus says? Why are you delaying from doing the right thing? It's obvious to you now. God's made the right thing so clear. He's taken the initiative to set it before you to help you draw a clear conclusion. Why not recognize what's right and respond to it? You know, many times I think that's the case. We, the Lord's shown us what's right, and for whatever reason, we're just not responding to it. You know, the Bible says in Malachi, He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee. Oh, I'm waiting for God to show me. I'm waiting for God to show me. I think a lot of times that's an excuse for disobedience and delay. And God says, I've already shown you. Why won't you do what's right now? You have a free will. You now need, God says, it's your move. And he's put the, the, the peace right in front of you, but he says, it's your move now. You have a free will. And Jesus says, why would you not do what is right and make that decision and act upon it? He concludes here almost with another parable, sort of saying, this is what it's like. And he says, for instance, in other words, he's saying, why would you not judge what is right? Why don't you do what is right? And then he says, for instance, the idea is, for instance, when you go with your adversary to the magistrate, you make every effort along the way, he says, typically to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. And then the judge deliver you to the officer, or the officer throw you in the prison, and I tell you the truth, he says, then you won't depart from there until you've paid the last mite. In other words, Jesus is giving an illustration. He says, look, if you were guilty and you owed a debt to a fellow individual, and it was always better to settle on the way down to see the judge between you and your adversary, settle out the issue, resolve the problem before you go before the judge, because he says, once the judge 
renders his decision, you're going to be permanently sentenced, and the sentence is going to be extremely severe, more than what you can handle or what you bargained for. So a wise person, Jesus says, this is what you do. He says, when you and your adversary have something between you, he says, you resolve the problem while you still have the opportunity. Before you go before the judge and before you're permanently sentenced with a severe judgment. And he's illustrating how the same applies in spiritual life. See, the same does apply because the unbeliever has a debt of sin that he owes. And we need to settle things and make things right between us and Jesus. We're all in the same spot. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we need to settle the matter spiritually of our own soul and get things right with Jesus, listen, before we face the judgment of God when we breathe our last breath or Jesus returns. And then our judgment is rendered and the punishment of being cast into hell in the lake of fire is what we find ourselves facing. And Jesus' main point here as he concludes this is reconcile things now while there's still time. Before you're standing before the judge and before you're permanently sentenced eternally with something that will be way more severe than what you bargained for lest you be cast into the lake of fire. See, the Bible teaches very clearly our eternal destiny is at stake. We're all guilty as sinners alike and we can't pay our own penalty of sin. We all have a debt with our adversary, and, and we can't reconcile that. The wonderful thing is Jesus has paid the price for us. And all we need to do is accept his terms, accept the offer that he supplies to us, and we can settle the matter with Jesus and make things right along the way of this life before we stand before our judge eternally and be severely punished for our sin instead. You know, the story is told of the devil having a board meeting with some of his top-ranking demons in regards to what would be the greatest deception on this earth. And one came before the devil and he said, I got it. Let's spread the lie around the earth that there's no God. And the devil said, that's, that's dumb. That'll never work. There's too much evidence of God's existence. People would never fall for that. Let's tell them that another said that there's no devil. And, and, and the devil said, that would be dumb too. There's so much evil prevalent in the world. It's obvious that there is an a evil, ungodly influence affecting the culture. Another said, well, let's tell them there's no heaven and no hell. And the devil said, well, I don't think that would work either because I think everybody senses in their conscience that there's something beyond this life and we have to give an accounting. And then there was a brief pause and one came forward and said, I know. Let's spread the message that there's no hurry. There's no rush. And the devil said, fantastic. Spread that lie. Spread the lie to the souls of people. There's no hurry. There's no rush. Shall we stand and pray together? Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray this morning, whatever you've spoken to our hearts, that we would be responsive to your truth. Jesus, you said that the truth, if we know it, would set us free. And Lord, in whatever ways we need to respond to what you said to us this morning, would you help us, Lord? Give us the grace. Thank you that you care enough to share the truth with us. Father, for those of us who are believers, help us to respond to what you've shown to us, not to delay, but to obey. And Father, for any who may be here this morning who have never made the commitment to accept Jesus Christ, we pray by your Holy Spirit this morning 
that you'd bring them to a place of surrender, that Jesus, you would save them. 